0: the mistletoe margarita, the scrooge driver, the north pole punch. The holidays call for cocktails, so get everything you'll need for them delivered with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. So what's it gonna be? Classics like Bullet Bourbon, Don Julio Reposado, or Kettle One, or maybe something new. Find it all on Drizzly where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered for any holiday festivity. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's d-r-i-z-l-y.com today. Must be 21+, plus. not available in all locations.
1: You're listening to POP, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In part two of this podcast with director Steve Barron, he talks more about Michael Jackson and his creative input, also meeting and being the first video director to work with Madonna, the Take On Me video, which launched AHA, and also his life as a film and series director. But first, he talks about how it is working with a band and his experience with the Human League on Don't You Want Me.
2: There was a number of videos that were were a little political like that. There was this slight resentment towards, it. it, you know, the the videos seemed to play the person singing the song and leaving everyone else as a supporting act. And yet the band often, uh, you know, were were much more collaborative and even sharing uh, in their their writing and their studio recording and everything. And uh, so... I think there was a natural amount of resentment towards the lead singer, um, unless unless they were a band that were comfortable in their own skins and they just knew where where it, they stood. But um, often we'd get that brief from the record company, and only that brief was like, kind of, can we, we need to share a bit with the band because they didn't want the politics of kind of band saying, we don't, we want, we want those shots put in afterwards because you could have usually guess that you're cutting to someone once too much once too many times so yeah there was there was politics and and what i tried to do with with the this the idea for for uh don't you want me was was do a, a film idea where there were there was relationships going on uh the song was suggesting that as well and there were relationships um on camera and off camera and behind the scenes and within the film and uh, the film within the film and uh it uh it, so it suited it, really. I mean, you don't know what, I don't think you know what the hell's going on. I used to know. I, yeah, I did a whole um, backstory to it, and I used to know what that video is all about. But it's obviously very heavily influenced by Truffaut, French cinema, Day for Night. I wasn't a real cinema aficionado, but I saw that film by chance one night late on Channel 4, fell in love with Jacqueline Bisset, and was loved the idea of a film that showed the workings of filmmaking because that was also my passion and how I'd grown up was on the set with, as a loader, So here the crew were very involved in, in the film and at and some points in that film I didn't know whether we were watching, which film we were watching, and that was I, very exciting. So I thought we'd try and do that in uh, Don't You Want Me and use all the members of the band uh, as as the players within those relationships
1: I mean you mentioned Francois Truffaut and uh, and the film that inspired it but Truffaut also he appeared in that film he did sort of his, his Hitchcockian little appearance I, I was going through that video today to try and find you <laughs> and well, there's one point of someone coming through a door near the end and the trouble is it's so small I couldn't work out if
2: it's you or not are you in that you know what I can't remember um I remember that I wanted to go that one stage further, like we were trying to do with every video at the time. It was like, okay, we got this idea, it's a good idea, it works. How can we push it even further? And and the film within a film idea was good for that song and was working. And I thought at the end, we've got to make it a three-way thing. Even the cutting room is a set. So, you know, the the is if we go film within a film, we're in a film, we turn on the mirror, we see us, we're the final layer. And I think it was a real rushed moment. I seem to remember we did it very last minute and it probably, I I might be there, I can't remember, but I know the cameraman that we used and probably the focus pull and the grip were in that mirror. I don't know where I I was. I can't remember. (laughs) I mean, you say that uh, you you always wanted to go one step further.
1: Are you a person that uh, is ultimately, I don't know if it's the right word, but bored with what they've done and... Before and they want to, they want to sort of in, in, improve or just take that in a new direction. I don't know if the word is boredom from something, but you know what I mean. It's something that you you have a need to develop. Is this has this been your life in a sense that the need to keep developing and changing and 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 have new input and output? It was
2: more. I it was more. I was learning that when I pushed myself, I could do often do better. do things that were stronger and when I really worked hard at them and really applied to them I could do it but I was often you know know, I I could be quite lazy as well and I'd be like that's a good idea let's do it and when when I did that's a good idea let's make it better it often got better and I was just learning that really at that at that time so I suppose it was it was yeah just really um Becoming aware of of what you could do. I mean, I was excited by sometimes I was surprised by ideas I didn't know where they came from Uh, because I I I didn't I didn't go to art school or anything, so I didn't know you know you didn't know what would come out of a blank page, and often you know total rubbish would come out of a blank page. But okay, but you know, luckily, occasionally some some ideas that I'm really proud of and uh, felt that they, uh, they had no idea where they came from.
1: I mean, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean is really one of the greatest videos ever made of the greatest, one of the greatest songs ever made. I mean, you know, just yeah. so fantastic. And that, you know, yeah. that album was his pinnacle. And that, that video is absolutely incredible. What was the brief um, for the video? And what was Jackson's input?
2: Uh, the brief was came through the manager through um, the producer we had Simon Fields, uh, and uh, it was really that he wanted he'd seen um, Don't You Want Me uh, as one of the earliest videos on MTV. I think he'd watched at the birth, the beginning of MTV, saw Don't You Want Me, and he liked it because unlike the other videos it looked more cinematic. It looked more like a piece of cinema. It felt, we we shot it on 35 mil. And uh, that was my whole thing was let's make it really about cinema and be cinematic. And uh, he he really liked that. So he wanted Billie Jean to be cinematic. He felt it was a cinematic soundtrack and he wanted it to be magical in some way. So a little unreal. And uh, the manager said, look, he's really into Peter Pan, that sort of thing. Um, can it be, uh, you know, a magical story? And, and uh, um, there was this idea that I'd, I had. I used to do brainstorming with Danny Kleiman, who became a big music video director and commercial director and everything. And uh, we, uh, we, we kind of brainstormed an idea to do the Midas Touch for a Joan On My Trading video about maybe five months earlier. And I still had that idea. And it didn't work for her. It wasn't right for, for that song. And uh, it was stuck in my head. And so for this song, it felt like if you, you know, this this is a sort of magical character. He is, in a lot of ways, already a sort of a, a magical character that uh, that uh, is kind of slightly off-human in a way. He's got kind of, it's like a cat. He's like, you know, he moves like, uh, not like most humans move. And uh, so it felt like um, do something like that, where the Midas Touch, where everything this character comes near, lights up. And also, um, you know, I, when I spoke to him, um, you know, he said, I asked him, I asked him where, where does it come from? And he said, I just read it in a newspaper, you know, about this character, Billy Jean. And uh, he'd say he'd, it was a story in a newspaper. So it became about the newspaper as well. He didn't really, um, it, there weren't any I, ideas as such that he put into it. When I got to LA, uh, we'd written and faxed the script, they'd approved the budget and they wanted to go ahead. But the first thing I did when I got to LA, was sit down with him and show him a storyboard of uh, how it would all come together, the, uh, the video and, and the frames that we'd be using in the various places. And uh, he was, he, he just took it all in and just um, enjoyed how it would be. And, uh, and then he did suggest another scene, which was a great, I thought was a great idea, which was a dancing scene where um, these characters came alive, but they were, instead of lit up, they were, they were mannequins that came alive and they danced behind him down the street, which I thought was a fantastic idea. And he said, we can get choreography. And I said, that'd be amazing. But when we went to the record company with that idea uh, and the cost implication of that idea, which was only $5,000, I remember, they said, no, you're getting $50,000 to do this video. Well, you're not getting a penny more. That's it. And we couldn't absorb that because actually we weren't making any markup on it anyway. So we couldn't absorb it. So we couldn't do the idea. So I presume that they would tell Michael this. But I think to this day, he thinks I kiboshed the idea. But, um, uh, you know, obviously he's not with us anymore. But I, I, I saw an interview with him where he, he felt that uh, I would not let him dance, which which I, I was staggered by because I had a, in the storyboards we did, you know, I'd been told that he danced and he practiced a dance in front of the mirror. So we'd left two choruses for him to dance. So they clearly storyboarded with him, da- you know, didn't know how to depict him dancing but they were proper choruses long chapters of it so but i think it was because the record company cleverly swerved the extra money by you blaming me possibly for not wanting to do something that was going to cost extra money you know um so but who knows you know i don't know the the full story of that You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. It was a funny phone call from him the night before we shot, where he rang up and I was in the Chateau Mama and I was ringing the hotel, and he was like, "Steve, can, you know what? Let's not do the, uh, let's not do the, the dancing," and and I had already gone. We we weren't doing it because we didn't have the money to do it, and uh, I I said okay, and I I could have said. You're not doing it because we, we weren't given you know, weren't allowed to do it. Um, but uh, anyway, we left it at that. And I presume that then they'd sort of come and said, do the dancing on beat it, do it on the next, do it on do it from here, leave the video how it is, you know.
1: Well because- one thing that I find really fascinating about that video, it sort of references to me. Um, and I don't know if that's true. Other, you remember the Jacksons, Can You Feel It?, where they're almost gods and they're, you know, you mentioned the Midas touch, but they're throwing down gold dust over the world. And they're, they're sort of demigods or something in, in this video, yeah. which, which Michael was in as well. And also Saturday Night Fever, when John Travolta dances on the lit up dance floor, but different, he's not in charge of the dance floor, whereas Michael was in charge of, you know, the 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 lit dance floor that yeah. you'd created um yeah for billy jean were they were they reference points for you or is that just coincidence
2: i think that's more coincidence that uh the satellite fever i don't remember being um in the thinking at all um the gold dust from the videos uh maybe, maybe some of that sunk in you know, watching it, but I'm not sure. I felt it was we were trying to do something that hadn't you hadn't really seen before. And uh that was so this, the paving stones, I didn't really reference over anything. They were just kind of, you know, this this is uh just a piece of magic that I hadn't really seen as far as I could remember. Um, but yeah, you're right. It was Saturday Night Fever, of course. In fact, we did the Adam and the Ants video the Ant Music video, and that was more Saturday Night Fever. That was Adam Ant saying, "Ah, I want to do that thing in Saturday Night Fever when, you know, he got the only, and it was the only underlit dance floor in London at the time. Can't remember the name of the club, but we managed to get it and shoot it there.
1: Yeah, I think I went to that club. It was a gay club. <laughs> in the 80s.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I can't
1: remember yeah. what it's called. And it had some really tacky name. <laughs> I forgot yeah. what it's called. But I remember loving dancing on that dance floor after Saturday night. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I think really comes out in both the Jackson video and um, Madonna's Burning Up, which you did, is the um, their star quality, if I can call it that, where the when Jackson looks at the camera, when he dances and he looks at the camera in Billie Jean, I mean, there is this amazing connection that you get with him. And when Madonna's, you know, writhing, I think it's is it on a bridge and when she's, you know, sort of crawling around on the bridge or whatever and looking at to the camera, you get exactly you get that as well. What do you think these really phenomenal, successful pop stars have that others don't?
2: it's very hard to put your finger on it, but you do see it. I mean, you kind of when I met Madonna, I felt it was there. When I'm obviously when I saw Michael in particular on that in that studio doing doing his his thing, uh, you just have this this otherworldly star, David Bowie as well. You know that that. Uh, um, that that isn't and mere mortals don't really have. It's very hard to describe it, and you it's kind of a feeling. And I suppose you you know you know them already because you've known them on on TV lit. And uh, but uh, often you know you meet you meet people and they're they're not quite what they were on television actors everything. And uh, but with uh, certain certain people like Madonna and and. Uh, Michael Jackson, they they were on or off the camera there. They were built to be stars.
1: I mean, another staple of MTV was Take On Me, which is also a phenomenal video with this animation aspect at the start. And at the end, it's creating the sex symbol out of Morton Harkett, in a sense, that he breaks through the glass, the animation figure breaks through the glass, and suddenly there he is in all his sweating, beautiful glory, as it were. And you've you've created... uh, a sex symbol was was he comfortable with doing that because I've I've met him a few times interviewed him a few times and went around his house and I always felt that he poo-pooed the aspect of his looks because he wanted also to be taken seriously and as a band they're really taken seriously today but at that point they they were more of a sort of pop throwaway band um so was that something that came into the discussion with take on me?
2: no because it was too early really he didn't really know he hadn't become that sex symbol yet um it wasn't until after the video really that he uh, that, that it all hit and went crazy for him like a teen idol and uh, that messed with anybody's head but that hadn't happened yet so you know we were when we were shooting the video we were just doing a video so he wasn't relating that to being a sex symbol because he didn't he, he didn't know and he was quite young and a bit naive in a way about it felt like about girls I don't think he'd had a real relationship at that point um with a with a with a girl and uh, I mean I'm you know I'm sure he wasn't a virgin but um you know he, he didn't feel like he he that was necessarily something that uh, was at the front of his mind he he just actually um would uh would be happy to you know, to belt out that song and do it for real. And, you know, even miming to it, he wanted to do, he wanted to show that this is this is what he could do. That's what he was proud of, was, was being a singer. And uh, that, uh, you know, the sex symbol thing then hit on a, such a, like a big tidal wave, thousands of screaming girls and front covers of all these magazines. And then it was a big question of, like, this, is this, this isn't what I was putting out there. This is not what I meant it to be, and nor ever thought it could become. But it came with the uh, with the territory. Yeah, I think it's
1: amazing. I think that's that's you know one of the, the the great power of the pop video was that it could create a star from how they were presented in a in a video. And I think Aha really showed that. With Dire Straits, maybe it's a sort of different story because MTV. What I heard. And, and Money for Nothing launched MTV Europe, obviously, but it was made before. But what I heard was that MTV America were not happy with the original footage or Dire Straits wanted like a live video and MTV America wanted something else added to it. And I presume that's why you were brought in and then mm-hmm. the whole thing changed. So could you tell me about that?
2: Yeah, it was... Um... It was it was pretty straightforward. I mean, Jeff at, at, um at Warner's just said that Mark's not very keen on videos, but he's written a song which is a little, in a way, condemnation of MTV and uh, and videos. But it uh, it is something that he doesn't really appreciate. He thinks that the you know people are listening to the song. That it should be pure. It should be about the band playing it. It should be uh, if if you have to see it on TV. But the, the thing that we don't want to do is put images. This was, you know, Dire Straits felt like they didn't want to put images to in any way change the meaning of the purity of, of the meaning of the song. And naturally, you're going to put images to it. If they're not coming from exactly the same place, then they're not purely uh, what the intentions were and can slightly colour the, uh, the the experience of listening to the song.
1: I mean, what was interesting about that song in itself was that it was derogatory to MTV. The yeah. actual lyrics are derogatory to MTV. So, you know, money for nothing and the chicks are free. And yet MTV took it and made it uh, an MTV song and sort of turned it round in a sense with the line, I want my MTV. And I find that really sort of uh, amazing because it's it goes from one aspect of them not initially being keen. You making a video that is then compatible for the band and works for MTV and then MTV taking it completely on board as a sort of positive (laughs) uh, work for MTV. Was, Was that something that you were aware of at the time?
2: yeah I, I straight away you listen to those lyrics you're like uh, they they would they really want to promote this yeah <laughs> um, and uh, they're like yes we do and, and they were right you know because they could say they by by not saying we're not playing that because that's against us um, you know they made it for them they made it like it's like fine that's these are opinions that we can all have and uh, um, and you know and it's fun and uh, it was kind of you know, we were exploring new territory with the with the CGI animation, and so it was very it was very like it felt like part of MTV that they, they their identity very much came from, which was quite clever early on. These little interstitial videos, short little five ten second cuts of claymation or whatever, that with the MTV logo, and they were they were very clever because they they gave they rose mtv as as a ceiling to everything as uh, it gave it you know it kept the identity even though some of these bands were massive and and iconic and it still you know they surrounded it with this this uh, roof of uh, mtv so anything you know, they could get away with anything even a derogatory song going to number 1 and giving it mtv video of the year as well <laughs> it was like um all of it was uh was was kind of funny and ironic for me um and uh and you know i i got to know mark quite well after that and uh we did a number of other videos and it was it yeah it was uh it was something that just kind of came at the right time because it was a time when people were questioning mtv it was like what was it four years old or something and uh, is still irrelevant Is it is it you know is it gonna what's it gonna do next what's coming and This came along, so that was that year sorted.
1: One of the things that you, as an early video director, you became a film director and and also a series director. What for you is, you know, film is very collaborative and I presume series is also incredibly collaborative and there's much more uh, money in terms of budget um, and many more people that are involved in decision-making. Was there more freedom making videos or is there more freedom for you today when you make a series or
2: you make a film? Definitely more freedom with videos. I had uh, a period where a few years where, um, you know, it was literally, I could do whatever, I, within reason obviously, but whatever I wanted to do. And, you know, with good budgets and things, it was, uh, I was uh, trusted with that because we'd had success with some of it. and. Um that that was freedom I never really got again. Although I did some mini series uh later, Arabian Nights and after Merlin was a, a quite a big hit, uh Hallmark Entertainment gave me some sort of blank pages in the same way. They said, What do you want to do? I said, Arabian Nights. Let's so do Arabian Nights. Uh, and they, you know, they came up with $26 million to make it. And really I had no uh yeah, no no interference or really was allowed to do what I wanted to do. For a few of those miniseries, it, it became a bit like a video where it was like, right, put your, do what you want, do it how you want. And that was great fun, obviously. I'm a writer, and obviously my voice is
1: in what I write. As a director, what do you look for in a script, and how do you then manage to put yourself into the voice of who's ever written it so you're actually confined yourself within
2: the script Uh, I think just understanding where the script's coming from uh, making sure you're getting the subtext uh, and get everything you can from the writer um, in terms of intentions and whys and wheres and uh, and then uh, and then I'm going to naturally have ideas and some of them are slightly different. Some of them take it in a slightly different way, but, uh, you know, you, you, they expect that. Um, and I think writers are, are grateful that you're trying to, to not take away from it, but just to, to embellish and add to what the idea and what the, what tells the story the best way. Um, so it's, uh, it's a good, usually a good project. I just worked with Ashley, um, Ashley Farrow. Just worked with Ashley Farrow on uh, "Around the World in 80 Days," and uh, one, you know, great experience because he all he wants to do is make it as as good as possible, and and uh, enjoys where you take it when you take it on, and ju- jumps back in and and ca- helps carry the 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 load.
1: One thing about the 80s for me if I go back to that decade to finish with one thing about the 80s for me is that it wasn't always a great decade it was a decade of sexism racism misogyny homophobia unemployment you know there was there were lots of societal things which were bad in that decade yet it had this escapism of music and also uh, music video. Do you think music video played a role in changing societal values?
2: I'd like to think so. I mean, it be it was the you know a large part of pop culture at the time, and pop culture uh, was influencing people. It was seemed to be influencing the rhythm of the the eighties. You know, it got things got faster somehow from the seventies. It it got quicker consumption a little bit got quicker but thinking got quicker and action got a bit quicker did it bring the berlin wall down i would love to think so i'd love to think it helped uh the peoples uh gave them you know a braver outlet to to come and uh smash the wall down and and uh you know break through and break out um but i don't know that's for historians i suppose to ponder over if they even go there
1: well I, I think it did as well and I just want to say you were a massive part of that a massive part of my um 20s uh which was during the 80s uh with these music videos and also as someone who worked for MTV and uh yeah you're still here today you're still making great series and uh, films and I really appreciate your creative in- input into our world so Steve Barron thank you very much Thanks. Thank you, Steve Blame. And that's it for the interview with director Steve Barron. I hope you enjoyed it. His book, which you'll find from the link I've posted, Egg and Chips and Billie Jean, is all about the 80s if you'd like to read more. So I'll see you with more History Makers soon. You're listening to Pop! The History Makers with me, Steve Blame.